Well, welcome to the First Church Podcast. I am back with Pastor Brendan Glass from Span Ministries, and I've really been enjoying my conversations with him. Uh, today we're going to talk about potentially a whole host of issues, and so it should be good, a good, good conversation. I want to remind anybody who's listening or watching to this, this is to, to be a learning experience, uh, I think, for the both of us, and to have just real conversations about um, biblical issues, issues of, of justice, uh, issues of, of race, and then also just to show what it looks like to have a conversation over difficult issues as friends. Yeah. Um, and so uh, thanks for being a part of this uh, and, and continuing to be with me. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm having a great time, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> All right. So what I wanted to do is uh, is actually kind of lead off with reading from Jeremiah. Some of my devotions have been from Jeremiah. And if you read through Jeremiah, what you'll discover is that uh, they basically, the God's people are living in a, a time um, that's just deeply troubled. Mm-hmm. And God is, is troubled by the culture and what his people are participating in and doing and who they're neglecting and, and so forth. They have political problems as a country. They have social problems, financial problems, moral problems. And there is a, just a lot of spiritual decay going on. Mm-hmm. So the other day, um, actually last week, I was reading through chapters. Part of my daily, daily reading was to read through chapters 5 through 7. And I just read that. And I was like, man, I feel like this would be good to read before we speak. And I had to push last Friday back because I had a sore throat. And everything's COVID right now. Right. So I didn't want to expose you to anything um, uh, that may or may not be um, COVID. <laughs> Anyways, I, I just want to read through some things here because I want to preface this with some scripture. We're pastors, mm-hmm. so why not? Um, so this is Jeremiah uh, 5, um, and I'm going to begin in verse 27. It says, like a cage of full, full of birds, their houses are full of deceits, talking about God's people here. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds and evil deeds. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Mm. And so God is pointing out here that God's people have kind of given up looking at um, those who uh, don't have fathers, who maybe are poor, who are, are struggling and so forth. Basically just God's people no longer care mm-hmm. for the poor and needy. And he goes on here, uh, and we see this theme all throughout Jeremiah and really a lot of the prophets in general. Um, and in verse 10, he says, the word of the Lord is an object of scorn and they take no pleasure in it. Now, he is talking about God's people in general here, but he's, he's going to point out a, a particular group, I think, that is interesting in verse 13. He says, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And for me as a pastor reading this, I'm going, well, like, wait a second. Yeah. Like, God's word is no longer taken seriously, and his His leaders are no longer preaching, teaching yeah. God's word. They're they're just kind of wanting peace when there is no peace, and they're, they're going along with what everybody else is doing. They're participating um, and a pursuit of, uh, of greed mm-hmm. um, and, and practicing whatever the culture practices. Uh, in this instance, um, which is obviously not caring uh, about the poor or the oppressed and so forth. Um, then it goes on, and in chapter 7, 
I'm going to read verses 5 and 7 here. And it basically, God is just going to be calling everybody to repent. It says, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Um, so God is just saying, hey, mm-hmm. we need to care for people uh, that don't have what you have, that um, are struggling, um, that you, you, need, you need to uh, take time um, to care for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, and, and so forth. Um, this is what I've called you to do. And so he's calling his people, his prophets, his leaders, his priests to repentance. And um, again, in verse 23 uh, in chapter 7, he basically, here's one of the ways that they need to do it, though. They need to obey God's voice, and I will be your God, he says, and you shall be my people and walk in the way that I've commanded you, that it may be well with you. Mm-hmm. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels. And the stubbornness of their evil hearts went back and fo- went backward and not forward. Our goal, I think, in this is to kind of filter out like how do we see God in the midst of our current situation mm. and how would God solve these problems mm. that are in front of us like, right we're not just at yeah. least for me what I'm genuinely trying to do when I think about some of the things that we're going to discuss today like how does how how would Christ mm-hmm. you know um, enter into these conversations or what would Christ do in this historical moment that we're in mm-hmm. and so forth um, not just jumping on any cultural uh, uh, bandwagon um, whatever that might be and then here's an interesting thing right because we're going to talk about politics I'm just going to if you're listening to everything I, I'm, I'm saying you're thinking like probably one political way potentially mm-hmm. but then it goes on in chapter 7 and um Beginning here in verse 31, it says this, They have built high places to Topath, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will be no more called Topath, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Mm-hmm. For they will bury in Topath, for there is no room elsewhere. You know, as somebody who, um, I guess, is in, uh, uh, I don't know if this is just something that's part of the white church, but in the church in general, maybe evangelical church, um, we're more of a holiness movement church, but uh, certainly in some ways aligned with evangelicalism, Mm -hmm. right, that brings to mind, like, the abortion issue. Like, they are, they're sacrificing their children to these other gods. And, And if you read through this, a lot of what they're doing um, is they're doing so for economic and political gain, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which is a scary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all that to say, this is just teeing us all up here. You're doing great. Uh, for, <laughs> for the things that we're going to discuss. Um, and there's, there's so much to discuss. And uh, like I said, I don't know if we will get any of, it, all, any of this all right. Of course we won't. No. But we're going to have an honest conversation yeah. about some of these issues that people have really been dealing with culturally. Um, and uh, we're going to have some fun with it. I'm excited. Right? And so here's, let's just start it off with, like, as I read through that, what what do you hear? Yes. That is a good passage. Those are good passages to kind of 
uh, open up a discussion about commentary, like God's God's perspective on the world, even today, because, you know, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet and what's powerful is he is showing us the heart of God. Mm-hmm. You know, he is articulating the heart of God. And this is where the prop, the prof, the prophetic ministry is so profound um, because what he is doing is I am f- expressing and sharing what God feels, what he mourns, what he grieves over us. Um, I, I am in a series where I'm preaching the Beatitudes at Span. Yeah. And, um, you know, before I, t- I took a break last Sunday, but before that I did uh, blessed are those who mourn and just kind of helping people understand that, you know, we will be comforted when we mourn, not what we want God to mourn, but when we mourn what God mourns over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what we miss. So it's like, you know, we want God to mourn over the fact that I'm single. We want God to mourn over, which are, you know, legitimate issues to be emotional over. But what God is saying, look, what am I weeping over? Wow. What makes me sad? Those are the things that you will find comfort in when you mourn with me. You know, you are in a position. And this is what I believe Jeremiah is saying. He's like, let's get on God's side mm-hmm. <laughs> and let's see the world how he sees it. So to answer your question, you know, I believe that God is mourning over America right now. I believe that God is grieved over the state of everything when you turn on social media i believe he's grieved over it because people are hurting people are suffering just like jeremiah said and the church like jeremiah said is mostly concerned about the church Mm -hmm. we're not really concerned about this dark world that we are called to be light in we're concerned with the status quo i (laughs) I was reading, you know, the the narrative of uh, the demoniac and uh, Grasnes, okay. uh, Jesus uh, goes and the man just comes and demon possessed. They are legion. That story. Um, Mark five, that story. And man, it messed me up one time. I was reading I was reading this recently, how the people kicked Jesus out after helping this guy. Mm-hmm. He put the spirit into the swine and the swine jumped off the cliff and the people were like oh he has to go he has to go and it messed me up because you know a lot of times people don't really care for you to be helped if helping you is going to change our status quo Mm -hmm. helping this man cost them some money (laughs) and a lot of times that is I believe where we kind of miss God Mm -hmm. the greater thing is people being helped and I believe that God is grieving that we're missing out on all these people who have needs and need to be helped issues, everything from uh, everything from economic issues to social justice issues to spiritual issues, you know? So yes, good segue. What do I feel? God, I feel, I feel he's mourning. And I believe that we as a church are not heralding in -hmm. the way that we should, in the way that Jeremiah, that God is grieved. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so trying to figure out how to segue into some of the topics we want to talk about here. <laughs> you talk about Jeremiah for hours. Yes. We, <laughs> but as you, you know, you think about Jeremiah, um, 
so Jeremiah lives in a time of more of a theocracy, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't live in a mm-hmm. theocracy. Um, our government is not set up to be a the- theocracy. Uh, and if you look throughout history, right, it just didn't work mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, in that way. Um, nevertheless, uh, God was to be placed at the center mm-hmm. of um, their lives, politically, socially, morally, all of those sorts of things. And Jeremiah certainly pointing out that, like, you guys have abandoned God. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he is not. I, I am not at the center is what God is telling Jeremiah to tell uh, God's people for sure. Um, and because of this, they are uh, basically being taken over mm-hmm. politically by foreign countries, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. ideologies, all of those sorts of things. Now, once again, like to be clear, like the United States is not a theocracy. Right. But the church in general, uh, I, I see maybe as a continuation as Israel not, I don't know if I'm ready to say it like it's a replacement, but certainly continuation. Mm-hmm, so it's mm-hmm. our job as the church to think about similar issues that Jeremiah or anybody mm-hmm. is thinking about within the life of the church and within our own hearts and minds, and maybe even the way we 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 vote or go about mm-hmm. life or talk about certain issues uh, or whatever that might be. And so, you know, in some ways, I, I think that we should be concerned about politics while also not consumed by them. Mm. I think we should be more consumed with what what does our faith look like carried out within the context of the local church and what is the world seeing? Mm-hmm. How is the world seeing the local church be faithful to a God who has called them to be in relationship with him? Mm-hmm. Similar to Israel, mm-hmm. um, but in a different fashion. Nevertheless, politics are not unimportant because politics are how we get along with mm-hmm. people in society. It's how we live together, right? Policy, mm-hmm. I don't know, the other part of the Latin word there, or Greek <laughs> word. But, um, but basically it's the art of living together. Mm-hmm. So we live with people. Like we love our neighbors. We have neighbors, so we have to live with one another. So politics are not unimportant, and, and politics make decisions that influence how we live among one another and so forth. That's a long way of saying, in your view, what is the role of politics mm. Um, in the Christian church or for Christians. And we've talked about this a little bit mm-hmm. in past episodes, but yeah, um, yeah, I'm curious. Man, this will be, this is good. That's a good question. From what I have studied in just Christian history, biblical history, well, let's, we'll stay, we'll stay New Testament up until the present history of the church and politics. That's something we have never figured out. <laughs> mm-hmm. We've never figured out. I mean, because yeah. you go back to Constantine, where the people were like, "Hey, it is Constantine's place yeah. to have power uh-huh. <laughs> over the church." Yeah. To where you get to the investiture crisis, where it's like, "Wait a minute, we don't want the government to have anything to do with <laughs> you know." You've yeah. had it all, yeah. so now we kind of have this, still this, this, you know. The culture calls it a situationship relationship where it's like, wait, we're not really fully together, but we're not apart. We kind of yeah. like each other. We kind of need each other. There's kind of this codependency. It's like a situationship <laughs> relationship. And I, I think that where the church should be is understanding that the politics is just another out, uh, another it's, it's another manifestation of God's creation. 
you know it flows out of his creation politics is just another outflow of his creation so we need to be concerned about that as god's people who are supposed to be the light and darkness that yeah that's another outflow of god's creation so we should be concerned we should care we should voice our and express our uh our biblical world view as we approach these political conversations and discussions um the problem is there's so much diversity in politics within the church. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, it would be nice if we were all one mind and, yeah. you know, we were monolithic in our thinking. And if, you know, Pope Josh Dieter said, this is the word for the church. <laughs> this yeah. is what we're going to believe for the next seven years. And we all fall in line with that. It would be so easy then. But there's so much diversity in the church that it's like, you know, we we we, we want we we see we believe this is what god wants over on this side we believe this is what god wants over on this side and then it just kind of says well you know what is our role and the role i believe is we are supposed to be jeremiah mm-hmm. i believe we are supposed to be jeremiah i believe that we are supposed to be the prophetic voice that the polit- politicians and the government can look towards and say they have the heart of god they have yeah. the pulse of god they have the word of god and there's not political influence, but directional influence. And that's that's a big difference for me, not political influence. So we want to we want to influence politics to act our way. No, I don't. That's not going to work. It never has worked. But if it's direction, what is the direction that we should be taking our government into? What is the direction that we should be taking our party into? What is the direction that will lean us more into the Christian ethic mm-hmm. that they should look at us and say, that's the, that's the model right there, how they're living. That's how it should be done. So that's my thoughts, man. What about you? I think we have an opportunity to be somewhat involved in politics when it comes to voting, influencing and so forth. Don't think it should become our, our primary, uh, it, it, to pastors, at least, right? Right. I don't think it should be our, our primary concern, or even really Christians in general. I, I think we should be very concerned about it because it does affect how we vote or certain policies and so forth certainly affect our neighbors, mm-hmm. neighborhoods, friends, family members, all those sorts of things. Uh, so I think that it should be important. I do think our primary role, is, like you said, is to preach the gospel, to teach the word, and to call people to repentance and 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 preach in such a way potentially that you even get people thinking about like well wait a second i i thought this is how society mm-hmm. is supposed to work mm-hmm. but god's word says this i don't know about you have you had this have you had this experience i feel like i have this experience um when i talk politics with people i feel like my more conservative friends think i'm a liberal <laughs> but then my my liberal th- friends think i'm a conservative <laughs> Like, have you, have you ever, do you have, I, maybe oh, yeah. you don't, maybe oh, yeah. you don't have I, yes. that, but like yes. part of me likes that and part of me doesn't like it at all because it feels like I don't fit in anywhere. Yeah. Like it feels like, and, and sometimes I wonder like, am I, am I too wishy-washy on mm-hmm. certain things? And I don't think I'm super wishy-washy. It's just like, I don't feel at home. Right. Right. Completely over here or over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if my church is primarily full of predominantly, right, to use these labels, conservatives, like my preaching 
as far as the prophetic part of my preaching, needs to be able to call them to repentance and certain idols mm-hmm. that they have set up. Yeah. Well, I think on the other hand, if if I were in a more liberal leaning again to just use uh, um, labels, right? I think maybe maybe some of the more I guess conservative values that we see in the scriptures mm-hmm. need to be a part of my prophetic preaching, so that we're constantly thinking ourselves, like God, like how how are you calling me to repentance? What needs to change about me? How am I being molded more by my culture, or by the world, mm-hmm. or by my political party? Or am I being molded more by your word? Mm. Um, and uh, like I think about that, I think about that in my preaching, um, uh, and I find myself getting the most nervous. Right? I don't know about you. You're, you've been doing it longer than I have. When I begin to preach into what I think are political idols, especially mm. right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I feel like we have just set them up. Yeah. Uh, whether it be personalities, persons, politicians, mm-hmm. or even uh, a particular worldview mm-hmm. that is set primarily by politics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and not by what, what I view to be uh, God speaking through yeah. his, his word. Or through, yeah. You know. yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's I, I feel that too. You know, I, I try to be very, to have a, to the best of my ability, have a biblical worldview. And if you have a if you really make that the priority, biblical worldview, then you will have a hard time 100% being blue or red. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, Jesus did not do us any favors. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, in yeah. trying to figure out should we be liberal or conservative? He didn't yeah. give them any favors. Um, and he kind of made that clear when they asked him, should we pay taxes? Mm-hmm. You know, he gave an amazing, an amazing non-answer answer yeah. that did not express how he felt about politics. Mm-hmm. But what it did was it once again reminded people, like you said, what's primarily important. You know what I'm saying? God. Yeah. You know, give yeah. to God what is God's. And it's like, well, dang, where does that stop? Yeah. 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 <laughs> At the end of the day, like mm-hmm. that, that answer was just we. Yeah. It was, it was a deep philosophical religious answer. Um, but w- w- my thought is this, man, when it comes to sides and, you know, where do we line up and where does this, and where do we go from here? And, you know, they say this, most people don't realize that our, you know, our, our, our humanity is susceptible to certain things. And one thing that we are really susceptible to is, being a part of the crowd hmm. yeah you want to be a tribalism, part of the crowd. man exactly yeah. tribalism we're just susceptible to that okay i don't know if it's in our human evolution hey i got to be a part of something to survive but what happens is we say all right cool i want to be a part of the democratic tribe i want to be a part of the republican tribe that's fine but what happens recently is these tribes have, well throughout history these tribes yeah. turn into mobs mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and now this is when you see that like this mob mentality, this mob behavior to where even though I am supposed to be living by the biblical worldview, even though I'm supposed to be living according to the preachings and the teachings of Jesus Christ and what's laid out, man, I just get overwhelmed by the crowd. Yeah. So now I'm saying rhetoric. That's probably not the best presentation of Christ. I'm, you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of 
you know, having views that are okay to be my views, but the way they're being articulated and it's just kind of come off as just vitriol and just kind of just, I'm spewing stuff. And that's just because I just got overwhelmed by that crowd. And now I feel as though I have to be this way. And, and the, and the worst thing that a mob can do is kill. And that's what we start to, that's what we've seen in our politics in the last 10 years, where it's just like, if you're not a part of this tribe mm-hmm. crowd, then that impacts how I see you, view you, perceive yeah. you. See you as an enemy. I see you as an enemy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see you as an enemy. One of the things, I did a quick series on the kingdom of God in July, trying to prepare us for the election a little bit, how to think. and. Mm-hmm. I've we, we've again talked about this past podcast. Like I have a very high view of the church, mm-hmm. not in and like we're actually as far as like church polity and stuff is concerned. Like we don't really have bishop. Like our we're we're very uh, our our leadership is very egalitarian like okay. in our church. But what I, so what I mean by that is that like if we're going to join a tribe and go all in for a tribe, I think the tribe that Jesus called us to be all in for is the church, mm-hmm. right? And, and not just like my congregation, right? But I mean the church. Yeah. And so one of the reasons I want to have this conversation with you is because you are a part of the church, the mm-hmm. big C. Mm-hmm. You are a person that Christ has died for, right? Mm-hmm. Christ mm-hmm. died for the people who attend your congregation. Yeah. You are my brother uh, in Christ. Like I, I plan on being in in eternity with you, yeah. right? Yeah. And so the, I think right if we're going to go all in for a tribe. Right. Don't make it the tribe that rides on the elephant mm. on the back of the donkey, but make it as part of the church. Yeah. And as the church, I will admit, like because we live on this side of the fall still, we don't have it all figured out. Right. But we have brothers and sisters in Christ that we should still be standing shoulder to shoulder with, and learning from, helping all of those sorts of things. And I think it's the safest tribe if you are practicing your faith sincerely yes. for where mob violence doesn't happen. Yeah. Right when Jesus says, and and the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemy. I, I think he means it. <laughs> I, I really do. Like I, I think he means it. It just um, sounded good. Yeah, you know. Like, <laughs> but and and the gospel requires it. Yeah. The think that I was I was an enemy of God, mm-hmm. right? Until I repented and believed mm-hmm. in Christ, um, not from any merit of my own. Right. Like Christ has offered me love. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't because I was good, kind, agreed with him, like wanted things his way or any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like that power in my life right, and, and at the church, right, it should mm-hmm. foster love, not only for other brothers and sisters in Christ, but for people outside yeah. of the church. Because, yeah. yeah, they may be acting as enemies towards us, but we are – I don't see everybody as an enemy – in that way, but we are still called to right. to love and care. So let me ask you a question. Because uh-huh. you raised a couple of good points, yeah. and I just want your thoughts on something. So you said that the tribe that we should sign up for, be passionate for, live for, is the tribe called the body of Christ. Yeah. The majority of good Sunday morning, going to church, pay my tithes, Christians, mm-hmm. will probably agree with you. Yeah. This should be the number one tribe. But how come when it comes political season, it seems like even though that's my truth, yeah. it's not my reality. Why do you yeah. feel that is? Why do you what do you think is the difference between what I know I should be doing 
as opposed to what actually plays out mm -hmm. when I'm having conversations. Because, you know, that I know people who are, I love Christ, mm -hmm. love, 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 love. But man, you start talking about politics. Oh, I just can't stand it. Oh my gosh, yeah. no, man. It's almost like, yeah. wait a minute, what are we what are we doing? And we yeah. debates and yeah. arguments and I can't yeah. talk to them anymore because yeah. <laughs> yeah. like and these are uh, Christians can't I can't talk to that person anymore because of their yeah. stance on this and that type of like, Why do you think that is? Idolatry. Man. <laughs> you know, you look at Jeremiah, that's what it is. It's it's idolatry. Okay. And that comes okay. in tons of different forms, right? Yeah. Um it 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 comes with just wanting to fit in, hmm. right? I think, you know, if, if so wealth can become an idolatry. And so mm -hmm. wealth sometimes is predicated on, hey, I, right, I believe these things politically so that I can fit into this group so that I can get certain opportunities to acquire wealth. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's not a Democrat or Republican party issue part like problem i mean it's on both right yeah. you, just whatever tribe you need to get into to yeah. acquire whatever you need to acquire uh to get the friends that you need to get yeah. you need to have or move be able to move in or fit into the neighborhood that you need to be able to fit into mm -hmm. right um you have to be able to say the right things and do mm -hmm. the right things mm -hmm. and if you think with sometimes some nuance or like you say yeah well like, i understand like you know you believe this but this doesn't seem to be true um I think we're, genu we're we're concerned about that, um, and uh, yeah. So I, I think that's that's a, a problem um, that people have, and uh, yeah, in general, like the idea behind an, an idol, and like Calvin said, which I think he's right about this, is the human heart is an idol factory. But an idol is anything that we place before God, yeah. and it's not hard to allow to. In a society that is obsessed with politics, mm. to allow that to consume us. Mm. I mean, I'm interested in politics. Mm -hmm. I think they're. Fa I think it's fascinating. Like I, I watch political commentators. I listen to political podcasts every mm -hmm. once in a while. Mm -hmm. um, read the news. On, mm -hmm. You know, like I'm fascinated by it, and and sometimes I even wonder myself, like where you know, yeah. be careful, Josh. Yeah. Here, but uh, it has become more important to a lot of people than than the church yeah. within christ right and, yeah. and christ places us in his church yeah um, as god's people like before we're americans before we're northeast ohioans right before yeah. any of that right we are christians before yeah. we're black before we're white we're we're christians and so but we place all these other things in, in front of god um and if anybody threatens our god then we can't talk to them. Mm. Uh, the problem with those gods, like the problem with idols, is they're not really gods. They're weak gods. And so right. we have to prop them up and we have to hold them up. Mm. Now, if somebody actually threatens the one true God, we don't need to prop him up. Right. I, I mean, he can speak for himself. Yeah. Like he is powerful enough to mm -hmm, represent mm -hmm, himself mm -hmm. and all of those sorts of things. And so our job is just to speak truthfully about God in those situations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at least we should be. We're probably not because yeah. instead we're propagating the whatever civil religion we've taken up. Mm. You know, when you look when you look at those sorts of things on Facebook or whatever, like Christians who do spend more time propping up a certain political personality or person or politician or whatever, it does bother me a little bit. Unless you're actually in politics, I think. Right. I think if you're in politics, <laughs> it makes sense. It's your job. Yeah. Than Christ. Yeah. If we could get people as concerned with sharing the good news of Jesus Christ as we could 
of the good news of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or mm-hmm. whatever it might be, the Democratic Socialist Party, I, I think the church would be more transformative than what it is to society yeah, in general. I agree. Um, but it's not because instead we've adopted the gods of the culture. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and that's always been the issue with idolatry um, is not so much it replacing Jehovah God, Mm -hmm. but it supplementing Jehovah God, it being a part of the narrative. We want to put these gods with our God, not realizing that what what happens happens mm-hmm. before you know it that thing is before your god you know yeah. and that is the first thing because and it's interesting because you know no one will ever see it that way because politics is such an abstract mm-hmm. and it's so abstract and it's like oh, i couldn't possibly i cannot possibly idolizing my party and my political affiliate i cannot possibly it's just a part you know and yeah. we don't understand that you know Idols aren't real. They're ideas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're man-made. Even, they're man-made. Yeah. And that's even even when they were carving them up back in the ancient world and propping them up, they're still ideas. They're yeah. not just an art project. Yeah. That thing represents an idea. It's an abstract that takes on wooden form. Yeah. And, like, that's one of the areas where, you know, we were getting a lot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you and I, and that's okay. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed yeah. to express the heart of God, but we'll get in a lot of trouble if we said, you know what? A lot of us don't realize it, but we are idolaters when it comes to politics. Yeah, and it's doing its job. It's tearing us apart in the same way yeah. that idolatry tore apart God's people in the Bible. It's doing yeah. its job. Yeah. Now, does that mean that it can't be redeemed? Yes, it can be redeemed. I mean, yeah. we're Politics is a not like I said. It's a manifest. It's not. It's not good or it's not bad. It's yeah. a manifestation of God's creation mm-hmm. in its form. Um, but you know the way we can take it and process it and respond to it. Yeah, it can be. It can be very well said. It can be idolatry, man. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. That's interesting. That's a, that's a fun conversation. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure. If, you know, you know. That's the cool thing about doing podcasts. You like have these ideas. What are you going to talk about? And you really don't know what you're going to end up getting into. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's uh, that's fun. Let's get into this topic. Yes. Here, where do you see the black and white church being different politically? Mm. Maybe. And I, I know, obviously, right? You don't speak for every no. black church, black pastor, or, right. or whatever. Do you think they're different? Yeah. So we have to com- remember that politics for the African-American church was it, it, we are oppressed. We are in slavery. We are under Jim Crow. We are in the segregated system. Which party is against that? <laughs> you know, I mean, at the end of the day, yeah. that's what it comes down to. Which party is against that? Which party is going to Take us to that place of equality and brotherhood in our society. And historically, that is kind of what what was kind of the driving factor behind um, churches and their political affiliations. And so you see a little bit of that even still today. Mm -hmm. The idea is, you know, which party is going to line up best with our value of equality and 
for the last 60 years that has been the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. which is why you have so many African-Americans that, you know, kind of ascribe to that party because of, you know, this part. They This is the party that is lined up on our side. And is it changing? Yes. You know, it is definitely changing. You're starting to see a shift. Um, but um, when it comes to politics, um, you know, no, you're right. Not every pastor is the same. Not every, uh, you know, we have one pastor in Cleveland where he's kind of the poster boy, <laughs> poster boy uh, of, of, of uh, poster child of, um, of the black conservative Christian, you mm-hmm. know, um, campaigning for Donald Trump. You know, but you have so many others that are campaigning for Joe Biden. So it's shifting a little bit. Um, and I think that shift is going to continue um, in the future um, as, you know, politics continues to politic in the way that it's doing. But, yeah, man, there's no, you know, general rule that says if you're a part of the church, you got to be Democrat. Da, 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 da. People are starting to kind of break free from that. But in the past, yeah, I mean, like, wait a minute, how wait, we're 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 trying to be integrated in a society how could you you know why would you align with someone who's not for that you know that was kind of the idea prior to this time that we're in now yeah what's the what's generally again speaking of generalities here what's generally the black church's view of the white evangelical or biblically minded christian church that's a good question man is there one I think it's uh, it's uh, the view is just like with any other part of society, you know, as an African-American, as a black person. There are some white people that I can trust, that I feel are safe, that are okay, Mm -hmm. And there are white people that I don't trust. I don't think are safe. I don't think they're okay. I don't think they have their best interest in mind. And I think that's how we approach white Christians as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, we approach white Christians. It's like, hey, off rip, you call yourself a Christian, you're a brother. Hey, I'm all for you. Hey, let's go. But then we'll have a conversation about like, for example, oh, let's say something random, Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, these I don't know, these Black Lives Matter people and da 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 da. Mm-hmm. Now, all right, hmm. <laughs> now yeah. I'm sizing you up a little bit differently. Yeah. There is a little bit of apprehension um, in the last four years um, because there, yeah, a little bit more apprehension in the last four years because um, of how the role that the evangelical played in the last election. Mm-hmm. So I did create a little bit of apprehension, not saying that you don't have a right to vote for who you're voting for, but it's like, well, why are you voting for him? Are you voting for the one, that, you know, are you voting for the man who feels as though he can recover this economy? Mm-hmm. Or are you voting for the man who's, you know, has this clandestine way of s- telling certain groups like white supremacists, I'm the guy you want to vote for? Like, mm-hmm. which Donald Trump yeah. <laughs> are you voting for? Yeah. Um, and. You know, that created a little bit of apprehension. I mean, a lot of people just could not could not believe it. Mm-hmm. 
that the sweeping numbers of evangelical Christians that voted for Donald Trump, it's just like, whoa, we cannot trust the evangelical church anymore. And you're starting to see the evangelical church start to you're still dealing with the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you can vote for who you want to vote for, but you got to yeah. understand that comes with weight. Like, which Donald Trump are you voting uh-huh. for? Yeah. Which one? The one that has the, you know, make America great hat that seems kind of like racist in that crowd where it seems like if I were to, you know, which guy are you the, the ones that are waving the flags on the, in the protest and they're, you know, just basically kind of being raised like which Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, when it comes to that, I, I think that there is not a, like I said, a general perception, but there's definitely from my experience, from my congregation, what we try to teach Hey, we, we love, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to try to love, but we're human. And the moment something seems to go a little sideways, you know, that's, that's you know, how you're going to be perceived. Yeah. Which is why conversations like this are good. Um, because I, you know, like yourself and other, a lot of other white pastors, um, you have to learn how to make sure I don't accidentally go sideways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't accidentally say something like, hey, to me, it's nothing but. To this and the person right here, you just completely tore down the walls of trust and faith um, because you made a you, you said something that was a microaggression mm-hmm. or you said something that has some implicit bias in there. And yeah, I, yeah, this these are some weird times because of what's been going on in our country. But yeah, we, we view we view our right brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters until it goes sideways. Let's let's talk about this then. You you brought it up. Black Lives Matter. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. What do you? What's your impression? Or what do you mean when you say that? What don't you mean? All mm-hmm. those sorts of things. It's unfortunate that such a unifying movement idea um, has become divisive. Mm-hmm. When when Black Lives Matters first came into popularity, became a hashtag. I was asked to speak at Kent State University's campus and do a presentation for Black History Month Mm -hmm. to a room full of, you know, students and, um, you know, professors. It was fun. I loved it. And the, the message was Black lives have always mattered. Like, it's always mattered. You know, it's just now that it has a hashtag. Black lives matter it was a movement that began in 1619 when the slaves came on to the shores of, well, I'm sorry, Africans came onto the shores of America as slaves to be slaves and abolitionists stood firm against that. In that moment, those abolitionists were making the statement, black lives matter. These are human beings. Mm-hmm. These are not animals. These are not subhumans. That is the theme that I appreciate and see when we are protesting for Black Lives Matter or when people have a hashtag or when I say Black Lives Matter. So it's not it's an old theme. It's an ancient theme. It's just that in Ferguson. Due to social media and the times, it became a hashtag. Same thing. Same words, different form, Mm -hmm. same idea, different form. 
it's divisive now because what Black Black Lives Matter was not supposed to do, it did. It was not supposed to. It was not supposed to become an organization that had that had uh, uh, a face. It was not supposed to become an organization that could be, you know, let's call this person the leader, the new leader of like it was. It was not supposed to be that. It was supposed to be this grassroots idea that was supposed to spread like wildfire, but. You know, people can only go so long without jumping on the jumping on the opportunities that are presented. So now Black Lives Matter, the idea is attached to these young ladies who have their personal lives. They have their personal belief systems. They have all of that other stuff. Um, But now all of that is being attached to what's been around from 1619. And what's going to happen is Black Lives Matter is going to dissipate the organization, Mm -hmm. the hashtag, the idea. But as long as racism persists, that idea is just going to morph into a new form. Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter is on this. That mark my words that had this about to it's just now they allowed faces to be put on it. They allowed ideas to be put on it more. So they allied just added too much stuff to it. And, you know, it's convoluted now and it's going to go away. Um, but, man, that idea of Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and what it did with, after George Floyd, how that idea just literally engulfed the entire world. More so than any. We've never seen anything like that before in the history mm-hmm. of the world. It's beautiful. The idea engulfed the world, not the fact that these girls are, you know, African spiritualists, not the fact that these young ladies are Marxists, not the fact that they want to dissolve the nuclear family. Nobody cared about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we cared about the fact that for eight minutes and 46 seconds, we saw somebody slowly, torturously killed. Yeah, which is awful. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what the world saw. That's all they cared about. about. The, 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 the theme right there, the theme right there was black lives matter we have to get that in people's psyche so that type of stuff doesn't happen that's what it was that's that's what it's supposed to be going back to the slaves we got to get it into the psyche black africans are humans we want to get that in the psyche because if it's in your psyche then you're going to have a problem enslaving another human being and that has always been the method, the movement. Mm-hmm. That's what Jesus did. Yeah. You know, Jesus is like, wait a minute, whoa. whoa. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> Permit the children to come to me. He is giving dignity to God's creation. And that's all that that's all it was, man. So I, I loved the idea. I love it. But I hate that it's become divisive. But you know, that's how we that's how we human beings do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's um, it's one of those things that like I have no problem saying, right? And and to me, it should be obvious to mm-hmm. any Christian that Black Lives Matters matter. Like like that's fine, um, but I I do think people you know who get upset at people for being caught or or slow to use the slogan or hashtag or whatever. It, it's there is a, a 
kind of some semantic overload yeah. with that word anymore. It's like, well, what do you mean by it? Right. You know? <laughs> um, and if, if you mean yeah, that Black Lives Matters, like Black Lives Matters, and we need to be uh, um, aware of or aware of different issues that black people may deal with or uh, struggle with or whatever. We shouldn't disparage or rob any black person of their dignity uh, in any way, of course. Like, I'm with it 100%. Um, And I know there has been a history of, right, calling even like Dr. King Marxist, we we talked about that last time, Mm -hmm. or a communist, and he wasn't. but it is hard when you see videos of the people who are running the website, mm-hmm. right, saying, yeah, we're trained Marxists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and basically using the words of, of Marx and others who have – and I don't think everything that Marx said was wrong. Like I think some of even his critiques of the emptiness of capitalism are, are worthy of reading careful Josh yeah be careful <laughs> but um, I, I think it's I don't know if it can be implemented and it certainly never really has been implemented in a safe way right. because you end up taking you yeah. basically just create a bunch of class wars you tear down a bunch right. of institutions right. institutions have typically been established to prevent chaos right like and so you need to be careful about what institutions you tear down like there needs to be changes to certain institutions um and we need to decide which institutions are just unjust which laws you know all those sorts of things um but uh we live in a it feels unstable but if you look at human history like we live in a fairly stable time yeah and so we do have to be kind of careful for what we wish for and and, you know, if people are listening to this and they say, well, Marxism is just a ploy to, uh, for white people or white evangelicals or, or in general, it's just a way to scare them or whatever. Like, I know I have relationships with people who have either had to flee their country or who have survived concentration camps right. because of Marxists. Yeah. My neighbor was put in a concentration camp under Tito's rule mm. in Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a German, so her dad actually, it's, it's, uh, I won't go to, into everything, but her dad did fight for the Nazis. He was a German that lived in the Yugoslavia. They were part of, um, I'm not going to say this right, the Swabian Germans uh, who were sent down into the basically the area of Turkey to keep the Turks mm-hmm. from coming up into Europe and basically taking over Europe. And this group of Germans stayed there for hundreds of years. Uh, basically set up home, they became farmers, all of those sorts of things, and were really good at what they did. They basically fed the entire area. Um, they remained German, but they didn't live in Germany. Uh, they're basically kind of, they were they were mercenaries at first that became what was then a community of people mm-hmm. who lived in that region that were basically there to take up arms if anybody came mm-hmm. through that region mm-hmm. anymore, but nobody really did at that point in time um, for hundreds of years. And so they, they remained German, World War II broke out. Her dad then went to fight for uh, the Nazis, as all German people did yeah. at the at that time. And just in case people are wondering, Nazis are bad, <laughs> really bad, evil, all of those sorts of things. But when you're a young young person, you're called to go fight for your country. A lot of times that is what you do, whether mm-hmm. it's good or bad. So what happened on the back end of that uh, is that people, I, people are really quick 
to talk about how bad Nazis are, and they forget how bad um, Stalin and Mao and all of these people that basically took up the ideology of mm -hmm. Marx were. They were actually worse mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. Hitler, mm -hmm. if you look at how many people they killed and what they did to access power. Mm -hmm. um, but people forget that. So what happened then is, is the Russians helped Tito and others come back into Yugoslavia, take that land back over. So they displaced all the Germans mm. who had been living there for yeah. 500 years. I mean, it was basically their land. They were the farmers and so forth. And what they did is they took all those women and children um, and any remaining men, old and young, and they threw them into prison camps, mm -hmm. just like the Nazis did. Mm -hmm. um, and they starved them for four years, wow. uh, marched them from camp to camp. My neighbor was at six years old was put in one of these camps uh, uh, by these people yeah. and watched her mom and her sisters and all of them starved and starved herself for four years until eventually people told Truman, because we were propping up, our country was propping up and giving aid to Yugoslavia during this time for a period of time until finally Truman basically said, we are going to stop giving you aid until... Uh, Mm -hmm. Until you let let these people out of the camps, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we took out a lot a lot of them. In our church, we have Romanians mm -hmm. uh, who fled in the eighties from mm -hmm. the communist re uh, revolution there, um, who are part of our church and so forth. So I know a lot of people like think it's just like, well, you know, it's not real, or they yeah. don't. I yeah. feel like you don't really, not you, like some people Understand. don't really realize yeah. that like that's real, mm -hmm. like that that has happened. Mm -hmm. Like Mao killed millions of people to get China to where they are today. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Stole land from millions of people. Oh, yeah. Like, like that's, that's how, like, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And right, I, like, I don't think we're there as a society <laughs> or anything or that, right. th be it, that's BLM's ultimate goal. Right. But, like, for so, a lot of people that actually, like, yeah. oh, yeah. So, like, and that's, it's a good mm -hmm. discussion yeah. to have because, like, when you have people like Black Lives Matter who mm -hmm. are talking about all right, Marxism stuff mm -hmm. like that. The 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 message that they are saying is this current system has not, does not, and in the foreseeable future will not ever work for us. Mm -hmm. So we need another option, and that's why you have people who will, you know, give themselves over to these other ideologies. Yeah, they're giving themselves over to the idea deal of the other ideology ideologies that's what it is like yeah. this whole idea of rising above capitalism rising above mm -hmm. sexism rising above all yeah. this other stuff it's very utopian yeah you know yeah. um but people don't understand what the drive for the perfect society has on individuals leaving leading that drive so of course yeah what's what's killing a few people for the sake of setting up a perfect society yeah, it's a reasonable sacrifice, especially when I become obsessed with the idea of that. So, yeah, I mean, that, those type of ideologies, I, I can I get it. I understand mm -hmm. why it's kind of oh, makes people a little nervous and afraid. Like you said, that, that stuff is real. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's just unfortunate it got attached to this thing. Yeah. There, Black Lives Matter has nothing to do. With, well, Black Lives Matter, the idea has nothing to do with Marxism. It has to do with the dignity of a human being. Mm hmm. Yeah. The dignity of a human being to where I don't have to fear for my life simply because of the color of my skin. My wife sent me a um a uh, a video 
some lady it's a white lady it's a tiktok and this white lady just left a protest and she said i just talked to a black woman and a black woman said something to me it was the most powerful thing i've heard in my life she says black people are most dangerous in a white person's in a white person's uh imagination i was like wow Black people are most dangerous in a white person's imagination. That is why that statement, Black Lives Matter, is so important because what it does is trying to change the narrative of the imagination that you're a threat because you're 6'1, you have twists in your hair, you have sweatpants on, you drive a black car. And you got an earring in your ear. See, people picture that and it has a certain, you know, it it brings a certain uh, sentiment or feeling or mood. But I just described to you my son, literally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is my son, you know, literally, that's who he is. My son, who's a senior in high school, never had a problem with the law, is a great student we're talking about the colleges we didn't go to next year but if if we just describe make that description it's like what is the idea that your imagination has of that person and that's why black lives matter such a powerful statement Mm -hmm. so that is the other semantic part of black lives matter that i want to talk about is the idea that and this is really what's kind of gotten us here culturally potentially right is is policing. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think the other, the, the other uh, thing that has been attached to Black Lives Matter is that the police are systemically racist. Um, and so, the, so I, yeah, I guess what would you say about that? Like, and you even, you said, you know, you about became a police officer. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you think about that? Like, how do you go about that? Um, that's a deep question. Uh-huh. So you, there is a train of thought that I, you know, institutions and systems and structures, you know, do have uh, inherent flaws mm-hmm. that can, you know, that can produce less than ideal um, results. So there is this. There is, there is, and I kind of tend to believe this. There is a flaw within the criminal justice system that does make the system of policing have a unfair implicit bias against minorities. I believe that. I believe that systemically things do need to change in the criminal justice system as a whole. What happens is you have this criminal justice system. And and so, for example, you know, we talk about it a lot now in the 80s uh, when 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 you had this. This criminalization of crack cocaine, which is reasonable. OK, it's an illegal drug. It's a legal substance. It's tearing people up, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But what it what happened was this whole idea that crack cocaine was this. This. <clears throat> It was going to basically destroy our country. 
like by it's that one drug in the 80s i grew up in the 80s and i remember nancy reagan doing all these television shows she's on different drugs say no to drugs and there, there was an assault on crack cocaine that's when all this funding went to the policing and this is why you have militarized police right now it's because of crack cocaine <laughs> where you got now these big old armored trucks to you know tear down drug houses and police are dressed like navy seals that's because of crack cocaine so you have this whole uh, you know this this whole time period where crack cocaine is the enemy of america well who consumes crack cocaine more than anybody else the african-american community because what crack cocaine did was it made a good high cheap a good high very cheap so you can have a little vial a little aspirin bottle of crack cocaine with probably about you know 15 rocks in it okay uh i've seen them don't ask me how Uh, You know, 15 rocks in it. Now, you know, 15 rocks, you said those things, about $20, $25 a pop. All right? You know, this thing, this little bottle right here, you know, it's worth about $300 street value. That little $300 street value is going to automatically give me 5 to 10 in in prison. And, you know, and and the stigma is going to be on me. Crack dealer, crack dealer, crack Mm -hmm. dealer. All right. Well, let's go up the street. And you have powder cocaine that they can't afford in the hood. So they rock it up and sell it to them. You have this powder cocaine and you can have an ounce of that. You can have two ounces, three, four, five ounces of that. And you are not getting a sentence nowhere near. So who has the powder cocaine? The rich, white, suburban drug users. And that's what I mean. It's like you have these systemic problems that create this bias. So all throughout the 80s, when it comes to drug use and drug dealers, all you see are these young black kids with sagging pants and, um, you know, know, jerseys, you know, just looking like drug dealers. And that's the idea. And now we are recruiting police officers who have this idea inside of them because the criminal justice system had it skewed a particular way. So you're recruiting all these police officers in my generation when I'm coming up and you know, when you have that and and this is what it is, I'm going through the hood, I'm going through the inner city and I'm going through any neighborhood actually. And if you look this particular way, the question is automatically assumed. Are you a drug dealer? Do you have guns? So I'm already on edge. And what I believe is that needs to change. That, well, not so much that needs to change. I mean, obviously, we don't want police officers to be let their guards down to be ignorant and ridiculous. But we just have to let people know where their ideas in their heads really come from. Yeah, I wanted to be a cop my entire life. You know, my entire life. And the only reason I'm not a cop right now or in law enforcement right now is because of the call of ministry. Mm-hmm. That never changed. You know, that never changed. Um, I do believe that systemically things need to change, though. So what needs to change? So first thing that needs to change is there needs there needs to be a deeper evaluation, psychological evaluation of police officers. We have to know psychologically how do you perceive white folk, brown folk, red folk, 
yellow folk. Like there has to be a way to what is your perception? Not to disqualify you, but to retrain you. God created us with brains that are made out of out of out of this rubbery type material, not stone. Like people's minds can be changed, you know? Um and what needs to change is that. Now, once that step takes place, another thing that needs to happen is policing has to become more community focused. You know, like community policing is highly effective. Nobody wants to be a community cop. They want to be what they see on television. They want to be lethal weapon. I want to be, you know, flashing lights and high speed car chases. Mm -hmm. But no, community policing needs to come back. Take these police officers out of these cars. Have them walking down the street, not on bikes. Mm -hmm. Have them walking up and down the street again in the inner city, creating relationships with people, creating trust with people. Not so much so the people can just trust police officers, but watch this so the police officers can trust the people. Mm -hmm. That's the type of stuff that needs to be re-implemented. And what we have to get everyone to realize in this country is implicit biases are real. They're real. Um, They're real. We got to understand that. And every cop has to be reminded that I'm going to be dealing with people today in life and death situations, potentially, where I cannot allow my implicit bias to, one, Make sure this person ends up with tragedy. That's the type of stuff that needs to be confronted. And, and another thing, um, you know, I can talk about this all day, so you have to stop me. <laughs> uh, another thing um, that, that, you know, uh, really, 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 you know, needs to shift um, and it really needs to change is this, uh, this, this idea that, um, you know, as a police officer, you know, I have to have this particular persona that is not going to endear me to the community I'm supposed to be serving. You know, mm-hmm. policing is supposed to be about serving, not just arresting. We, we've, we've created this militarized thing. Um, do I want the, the police to be defunded? No, I want us to change that. It's not it's about be, defunding. Okay, yeah, that's going to be my next question. Oh, like, no, how does no, that no. work and all of this? No, I don't. Yeah. Policing, no, nobody wants. It's unfortunate that certain people <laughs> hijack narratives. Mm-hmm. Defunding police is not really what people want. What we want is a reallocation of funds. So instead of creating program i mean you know mm-hmm. hiring more police to put all this money into just simply sold police stuff let's see if we could put money into programs that will reduce crime let's see if we can put money into one like one person said let's put money into uh, circumstances where we do have circumstances where you know police have to go into someone's house or something like that that you have more support systems there not just police officers, but you have more support systems. Now, it seems like, so I guess two things, these are different. <laughs> no, it's so fine. Maybe I should only say one at a time. But, like, so, like, in Minneapolis, the, because, like, I, I some of that, like, yeah, I can get that. Or, like, oh, how do we reallocate funds? How do we better train? All those sorts of things. But, like, in Minneapolis, where this kind of first started, the city council was actually trying to defund the police. Like, Seattle I mean, they were trying to cut the budget, mm-hmm. which, like, potentially, like, budgets of, 
uh, some budgets may need to be cut, right? Mm-hmm. If, that, that's for any part of society. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. That's not just police. Like you can, I think we should be able to look at any budget. Like, why are we spending this over here and it's not effective or, right. or whatever it might be? Um, and so I, I guess, you know, I hear that and I go, well, some people actually are calling for the defunding of the police. Mm-hmm. They did it in Cleveland a few yeah. years ago. Um, uh, or lesser funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for the right if you're going to cut certain things, like I could probably get on board with that. I could, any part of the government, I could say, well, yeah, that probably doesn't need to be there. Um, uh, uh, not any part, but any category that I could be up for potentially cutting, um, if it made sense. Um, second was, well, I almost lost my train of thought here. So second is that, so we, like, for instance, talking to a social worker uh, about this, um, Right, if you're going to send a social worker in with a police officer during a domestic violence case, which, let's say, you know, something's going on, which I think that's kind of what you're talking about there, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, so, certain, yeah, so you yeah. have, like, this domestic violence thing going on, and so instead of just uh, sending a police officer, and I don't understand, I don't know all their training, I've never been a police officer, never been in police training, I assume they have some training on de-escalation. Mm-hmm. That is a very difficult skill to learn. Absolutely. Like, right, you're a pastor, you do counseling, <laughs> all those sorts of things, uh, you know, the what we ask police officers to do, I, I do think, is incredibly difficult. Like, okay, right, you have to you have to manage certain high stakes, tense situations. I don't mean like shootouts all the time, but like a domestic violence case, mm-hmm. like that's 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 intense. Mm-hmm. You have two people who are going at it, and now you have to de- de-escalate it. And if the man is abusive, like the man is going to be sh- probably fairly strong or whatever. So now you, you just there's a lot going on there. But, so if you're going to send a social worker in, too, who has been specifically trained in the escalation as well, so now you're sending more people in. Mm-hmm. So, like, when I think about that, it's not defunding the police. It's actually increasing funding to the mm-hmm. police. If that's mm-hmm. what is going to take place in those types of situations, uh, because let's be honest, like, people cost more than equipment do. Right. right? You have to pay people's insurance, right. like training, all of those sorts of things, even, like, in a, a, a situation where the local police has become militarized and we're spending a lot of money on really nice vehicles and weapons <laughs> and so forth or whatever that might be, uh, you know, once you purchase a, an item, I mean, there's upkeep and stuff like that, but, like, it's, I, I would assume it's less expensive than more, more personnel to do certain things. Yeah, clearly, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, but... So what happens, like, with, with the cases where they actually did defund the police, like, once again, it's who? You know, like, what are their, what is the, what are, what is their ideological background? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, some people, like, because what, what was, high, like, because we do have people in our society who have the, let's overthrow, let's tear everything down, and there are people who have political office that believe that type of stuff, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it Defunding the police is not going to produce the results that people are looking or they, that their idea idealizing is going to happen. Like, oh, we defund the police. We have less police officers. We'll have less need for uh, Black Lives Matter. Protest. No, mm-hmm. that's not that's not what I'm calling for. Yeah, but I'm definitely calling for. Look, let's 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 see if we can do this thing differently. A little bit differently, slightly differently. Let's let's expand upon uh, p- 
policing, mm-hmm. you know, to be a little bit more comprehensive and less less about, you know, cops and robbers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm for anything that helps people to be less violent. Yeah. I'm also aware of uh, somewhat aware, right? Again, I've never been a police officer of how violent people, other people can mm-hmm. be. Right. And I, I assume that many police officers do go in to certain situations, fearful themselves for yeah. their own lives. Oh yeah. Um, whether the, the person that they are, uh, in front of black, white or whatever. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a, is a tough issue and complex issue. And yeah. I'm just curious, I always like to hear, okay, like when we say, or somebody says, like, the police are systemically racist, like, what do they mean by mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... It sounds terrible, mm-hmm. you know, to say, yeah, policing has systemic racism, problems with racism, but that does not mean that the individuals are, and that's where people get messed up. Well, I, I guess, so another question about that then, then, are they unaware that they're in a system that is racist? And so are they kind of like, because I mean, to a certain extent, that, that could be true, mm-hmm. but then it makes a lot of police officers kind of look a little bit like fools. Yeah. So they have these, I can't remember what they call it. What are you? Oh my gosh. Those trainings. Mm-hmm. You know, you have these trainings where, um, dang, what are they called? Well, it's, you have a split second to make a life decision, mm-hmm. life or death decision. And it's, you know, they kind of take, they've taken people through like different policing uh, scenarios and you have like a fake gun and it's like, all right, you know, you see the, you know, some people are going to pop up and you got mm-hmm. a second to make it, you're going to shoot or you're not going to shoot. I've actually witnessed one. Actually, uh-huh. my, Pat, my friend, Pastor Kelker, he had one. Uh, we had a panel with policing and they actually had some people out the audience and, and you know, it, it is, it is amazing how many people fail <laughs> at that yeah. and how a lot of times they end up shooting the African-American male who was innocent or it looked like you know, he just had a cell phone or he just had something in his hand, but bah, you know, mm-hmm. and um, you know, they went through one scenario and it was so funny. Like this girl, you know, she's, I'm, I don't know her. She's, she's cool people. And the scenario was, all right, you had a real cop and she was playing a cop and we're going to go and we have to take a young man out of his house. His mom called us to the house and we need to deescalate him because he's threatening her. He's being violent and they go into the house and he's playing video games. You know, they have the whole thing set up. He's playing video games and it's, sir, can you come with us? I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. And he gets up with his like controller, you know, and the girl just, <laughs> she just started shooting the little fake gun. And, you know, it just kind of goes to show that, you know, yeah, we got to be sensitive to cops and the stuff that they're in, but they have to understand what's inside them. Mm-hmm. And when that's the whole point of that stuff, like people don't understand the implicit biases that are inside of them. Mm-hmm. And it's those implicit biases that will make us make that judgment call if someone lives or dies. And these biases come from this idea that the African-American male is a threat. The African-American male is a threat. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm infected by that. 
<laughs> You're affected by that. Everybody in our society is affected by this idea that the media has portrayed, that movies have portrayed, that all kinds of stuff is portrayed, that African-American males are a threat. And, you know, is, 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 do, they, do they know that? They need to know that. Everyone needs to know that. We need to know that. I mean, I remember driving with my mom uh, through the inner city, you know, when I was younger. And, you know, a guy walking down the street, African-American male. Your mom. <laughs> yes. My mom would hit yeah. the little button to uh-huh. lock the doors. Uh-huh. Okay. And do one time. <laughs> now, were you in a high crime neighborhood or because so does that make a difference? Like, you know, for instance, growing up in, in Dayton mm-hmm. or near Dayton, I didn't grow up in Dayton. <laughs> And I'll say that pejoratively. I just didn't grow up in Dayton. Right. Um, grew up near Dayton. Mm-hmm. Right. There, there were areas that we knew that were predominantly white that were high crime. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, at least in your mind, right, you go through that area, high crime neighborhood. Be aware. Like, as a white person, I knew that in a white high crime area. is that, But I'm not implicitly – I wasn't – maybe biased or using or, or I'm aware that in this area that I'm more likely potentially mm-hmm. to be harmed than I am if I'm in my hometown. Mm-hmm. So like even for you, right? Yeah. Cause I assume, right. When she, yeah. But so, cause you grew up in Cleveland Heights. I assume if they saw, if your mom saw blackmail in Cleveland Heights, She's not locking her door. Or maybe she is. She might know my mom. Okay, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> maybe any male, though. Is, is, is she, yeah. What if there's a large white male there? But, you know. So, so the thing is, when it comes to implicit mm-hmm. biases, implicit biases are not environmental, they're individual. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much about the environment that I'm in is going to determine, you know, but it's what what do you who, who you what do you look like when I look at you within mm-hmm. three seconds I'm already making a particular I'm making a judgment on you I have mm-hmm. a bias yeah when it comes to your percept how I perceive you and that is the stuff that we are calling to be addressed mm-hmm. let's deal with that another thing that's missing um, is accountability you know there is there is this you know, I talked to a police officer once and he was African American and he said, Oh yeah, it's our job to look out for each other. It's our job yeah. to cover for each other. It's our mm-hmm. job to make sure that, you know, something goes down, you know, I'm alive for you. You know, and there's a level of accountability that's not there. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about life and death. That accountability needs to be yeah. there. But man, so it, it's 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 vast, Josh. I mean it's yeah. so much to discuss when it comes to policing. I respect police. I love police officers you know i'm not one of these people where i see a police officer and i'm just that's that Uh mob thing we talked about earlier that's that you know i'm am i the the anti-police tribe yeah no i'm I'm not going there um and it's unfortunate that so many police officers now have heightened uh you know insecurity Mm -hmm. about how they're perceived by folk now um but one thing that i understand you know, is that uh, there de- changes need to happen on both sides. Yeah. So, and thinking about this again, in, in, in relationship to the church, um, like I do think we can be biased, right? Mm-hmm. Prejudice, racist, all those sorts of things. Um, it's obvious we can't right. be, right? It's part of our sinful nature. Uh, again, this is why I think the church is so important 
uh, and not all police officers are going to go to church. So some of this needs to happen probably at a societal level. We need to be having these conversations or trainings, mm-hmm. um, retrainings, all these sorts of things. But I think the advantage that the church has, if it's done, if you have good ministries, is that you are reminding people to love people and of their biases mm-hmm. and of their struggles and where they like where their hate lies mm-hmm. and so forth and and how to deal with all of that, how to release it. And, um, you, you know, because I, th- I think biases are really hard to discover. Like, that's deep work of the heart, man. Mm-hmm. Like, and so if you're not spending time in prayer, if you're not spending time in God's Word, or I, I, I would agree that there's probably, like, some secular training that helps and works. Some of it, to me, like, as you read about some of it, seems like a never-ending game of, you're racist, um, no matter what you do. And so I think that's why some people struggle with it. Mm-hmm. Like, no matter what I believe I'm racist or do or think, uh, which is, I think is a, a real problem that people are dealing with. Like, you know, you're, you're allowed to say damn in, in church, right? It's a real place. Like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if right, you don't right. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, if I say this, I'm racist. If I say that, I'm racist. Like, I'm just covering for my racist, racism. Yeah. But getting back to the church... I think if we're if we're preaching and teaching well, we are trying to point some of these things out and some of these struggles that we have internally with different people or people who might look a certain way or whatever, whether it be the poor, uh, person of a certain race right. or whatever. Right. So, you know, like, so how do I, when I think about low-income areas, which, right, is the poor white area, yeah. it's a low-income area. A lot of them are addicted to drugs um, or whatever, have different problems going on. Well, so how do you get... How do you get rid of some of those biases? Well, God loves them and spend time ministering to them. I see right there. Uh, and with them. And you're going to see some things that are evil and awful and all those sorts of things. But you have to kind of, I don't know, both of those mm-hmm. need to be in conjunction with one another. Yeah. Um, also, not being foolish, like, yeah, they could, this person doesn't have a very high character. Like, they yeah. might harm you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like this is not me saying this about a black person, but just in general, in general of, yeah. uh, uh, people who are maybe more prone that you know are more prone to certain actions. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I would not want to be a police officer right now. No, it would be so difficult. It would to, definitely be difficult to be a police officer. Um, I, I appreciate everything that you had to say about um, policing. Maybe there's more to say about that. Um, but I want to get to uh, some of this. What what are the actual what are the biggest problems that black people are facing? Mm. Like you know, I, I think I th- I do I, I really think like the church, white people in general, like want to know like what can we do to help? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you are more likely to be in poverty if you're black, and all, all of these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Go to prison, all, like that's undeniable. But what what we're arguing about, or what people argue about, a lot of times, like there, because there are really racist people and racist yeah. groups. But I think as a whole, like people want the best yeah. for most people in our country. Yeah, and we spend our time arguing over what's the best way to get there, mm. like you know, for any group. Yeah. Um, so what, what's, what would you say those things are? Ooh. So let's, we have to, uh, we have to narrow that down because, you know, when it comes to the issues for African-Americans, 
is you know you have social you know you have psychological you know you have spiritual you know so what what people seem to be able most concerned about are the social problems what are the social problems that african americans have um that are pretty big all one person really has to do is do a little bit of research on the economic disparity between the white household and the black household and that will literally blow a person's mind it's like for every something ridiculous it's like black people black households have like man what's the number like eight dollars for every hundred dollars that a white person has um the net worth of the average black person in boston my friend recently told me is like eight dollars in comparison, and it's just something, something a lot higher than that, yeah. um, for white people in Boston, in the city of Boston, um, there needs to be an understanding that this economic disparity is not because black people are lazy, it is not because black folk, um, you know, are only using their money to buy Air Jordans and flat screen televisions and Escalades. That's not it. The reason that African American the, the, there's such a wealth gap between African Americans and um, and and white Americans is because pa- there's no generational transfer of funds. It's just not there. Now you have a lot of these individuals who want to get up and they will say, "Well, no, it's because of this." And black folk had this here, and they it's because they mismatched. That's not the case. The, what the reality is is African Americans are at a disadvantage, the African-American household is at a disadvantage because generational money is not passed down. We did not own homes. We could not own homes in areas where the value would appreciate, only depreciate. So when, in a, you know, you have a white family where, uh, you know, grandma, grandpa passes away and the house sales and that money can be distributed college funds nest eggs all this other stuff black folk don't have that and that impacts everything from uh home ownership to education to you know because if i can't move out of the bad neighborhood i can't go to a better school system you know so i think the primary thing that people needs to happen is just addressing this the economic disparity between the black community and the white community how does the church address that? How can the church address that? People aren't ready for the answer. <laughs> the answer really is you're going to have to have a mission to fix that. An actual mission where you're going to have black and white Christians who are doing well take it on as a mission. Pack my bags out of these suburbs. Move into the inner city with my money. Not gonna give everything away and just be on the street like a, you know, like a, you know, a Franciscan monk or something mm-hmm. like that. No, but we're going to be in this community. We're going to bring wealth into this community, and we are going to, we're going to uh, expose people to stuff they're not normally exposed to. They say that the best way to turn. Uh, I read one sociological report that said the best way to turn around impoverished communities is take people who are not in poverty and implant them into those communities. So they're 
exposed to mm-hmm. a different lifestyle. They're exposed to a different way of economic management. They're exposed to different things. Mm-hmm. And you bring in those opportunities. We're not talking about gentrification. Cause, it, yeah, because that seems to be... Mm-mm. Not gentrification. Uh-huh. Gentrification is we are going to transform the environment of the community that's going to push out the poor people. We're talking about implanting people into the communities that are going to create relationships, impact the schools, do that. And then you will begin to see over time a gradual change. Um, that's just that's like, you know, if we're talking to Christians, like what is on like churches, if churches can, let's say, let's adopt a neighborhood mm-hmm. and let's maybe ideally take a young family and plant them in that community as a mission or something like that. Yeah, that that'll be powerful. That'll be profound. That'll be very impactful. Um, but, yeah, that's the biggest problem. Like if we want to talk about what will cre- what. African-American, the African-American community needs now is we need that economic disparity, that gap to close. So one of the ways is obviously, so you say to expose people to to that sort of thing, to get people to, to move to those sorts of areas, which is a legitimate way potentially mm-hmm. get it done. Where you see it done, it seems that actually like it kind of goes hand in hand. I feel like I'm not sure how you do it without gentrification taking place, how to implant without moving somebody out because I feel like that's what happens a lot of times um, is and, and I haven't read that study but it feels like great right, if you purchase real estate move into this area and you plan to be there and I don't think that happens everywhere um, but people eventually are displaced and so the poor people just move to a different area mm-hmm. um, but I think relationships are huge and so um, if people really move into an area and then are a- they're able to do that, I think that's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because with um, gentrification, like I said, that's gentrification is when we want to raise the the value, property value. Mm-hmm. We want to raise the value here. We want to put worth there for someone else's economic gain, not in the community. Mm-hmm. So, what if you're a, a black homeowner there? It benefits you, and it actually creates generational wealth. As long as tax rates don't go up. That's what drives people out. Mm-hmm. You know, these tax rates go up. So we go yeah. in here, and these tax rates are going to go up yeah. because we, we're about to drive me out of my house. Right? Yeah, 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 so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, if it's literally just indiv- on an individual basis, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we're buying a house that's already there. Yeah. You know, it is what it is. The tax rate is But even if tax is. rates go up and they're forced to sell, that house is worth more than what it was you know before the gentrification happened and so they're still putting more cash in their pocket now eventually with real estate stuff like that you end up trading dollars because mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of times if it's expensive there it's going to be expensive somewhere else right. like you are right now in this economy but i mean but it all depends but but it's still like that creates generational wealth right. i mean the f- fastest way easiest way to create generational wealth i would i think is actually real estate yeah property. which you you yeah property which you and and uh talked about that's why redlining was really a bad thing um when it was taking place because it did mm-hmm. you know it held people back for a period of time and creating that generational wealth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what would you say because i think this is a, becoming a problem in the white community about 
well, really the biggest problem economically and educationally is actually fatherlessness. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's what the average white conservative would say in general. And I would say looking at our own church and the white community, I would say that's one of our biggest problems. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is not just a, a, a black problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I definitely agree with that. The, the, the destruction of the traditional nuclear family. Something that's been going on for decades, you know, yeah. in our country, and it yeah. is affecting both communities. The African-American community, the reason that it's political is because it seemed for a period of time, um, be, it, would, it, it was incentive, incentivized, if that's the word, incentivized, incentivized, yeah, yeah uh, for an African-American female to remain that way. Well, I won't say African American female. It, it's but, kind of incentivized for anybody to right, be that that's way. What I'm right? saying, Even to old, be poor. like I, yeah. I, 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 one of the biggest problems right now, I think, that I have with our government is it de-incentivizes marriage. Yeah. At any age. Yeah. Exactly. Any age. So when you have yeah. Yeah. someone where, you know, having a child mm-hmm. is actually an economic come up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it, it makes you. It makes you look at yourself. It makes you look at your choices. It makes you look at everything differently. Where it's like, wait, if I have another child, that means more food stamps. That means a bigger uh, tax return. That means more of this, more government assistance, more money here, blah, 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 blah. And that's an option. Mm-hmm. It is a viable option um, when the prospect of any other economic, you know, turn for the good is not very likely. I don't have education. I don't have uh, any money anywhere. I don't have any trust funds in my name. I don't have any of that. So that's one of the reasons where it became political, the whole idea of fatherless homes in the African-American community, because it's just like, man, it's like it was literally almost like some people go as far as to say, I'm not going here. It was it goes far. It was intentional to break up the black family. When you yeah. begin to see that, when when uh, projects were established and, you know, white folk moved out of projects, you get the black folk projects and you put a lot of black folk in there specifically homes for single moms and children mm-hmm. you know um but yeah when it comes to fatherlessness that is that is an issue i believe universally that's a problem um that i believe is creating harm in both the white and black communities and in our society in general the idea that fathers are easily replaced mm-hmm. masculinity is a problem <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh the idea that you know a a family is most dependent upon the maternal aspect of it ah yeah that's a problem mm-hmm. that's a problem i believe universally yeah yeah i know it's it's a problem in our church and, and not just i mean not just in our church but in, in the white community yeah if Right, if we're going to categorize people that way. Um, yeah, if you look at the people who struggle the most, a mm-hmm. lot of times, not everybody, it's not universally true, but I th- think what's generally true is that people without fathers are, are more broke. And people are without fathers for all sorts of reasons. Some mm-hmm. are irresponsibility of the right. father yeah. <laughs> of the child. Some is fathers die, all yeah. those sorts of yeah. things. Um, depression, you know, all, all of that plays in a role in it, but just that responsibility there. So, 
yeah, it's uh, something you know. I, I think that's where people come back with come back with in general. It's like, well, here's the big problem, and I think it is a huge problem because I think if you look, right, if you do look economically, those who do the best, like mm-hmm. if, if you were actually, I think just to like sift everything down, mm-hmm. typically those individuals who do the best long term are people yeah. who come from two parent households. Yeah. Like oh, with yeah. mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like oh, yeah. if there's one economic factor that determines, you know, how well people do, I think that's that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are, are cultural things. I mean you, and that's why I think that's one of the reasons Asians economically do better than white people. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. I mean it's not be- if a lot of them, some of them, you know, maybe were wealthy and moved over here, but a lot of them, they didn't have any generational wealth. And now there's different history, psychologically, and all those sorts of things taken on, taking on there. But, right, you don't get divorced in, in Asian no, families, right, in, right? right? Yeah, I mean, uh, so, I, yeah, I mean, it, you know, we yeah. can have a good sociological yeah. discussion. Yeah, I mean, there are <laughs> sociological reasons that people make different decisions. Yeah. Um, spiritual, all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But I think that's one of the things that you look at that culture and go, like, they got that right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. But yeah, but, but to the point of uh, fatherlessness in the African American community, I, I, I just don't like how it's been politicized because mm-hmm. now it's like there are undertones of, you know, there's there's undertones of prejudice in that statement because you know we have a lot of pundits, we have yeah. a lot of commentators on uh-huh. on the internet now. Now uh-huh. the number one problem black community is not racism, uh-huh. it's fatherless homes. Uh-huh. All right. What are you trying to say? <laughs> so, go ahead. And that's what it yeah. is. It's like you yeah. like, cuz it it kind of goes back uh-huh. to well, the number one problem, you know, I mean, it's just uh-huh. it's it's this whole, you know, it's your fault you're in this condition that you're mm-hmm. in. Yeah. Let's ignore all of the contributing factors mm-hmm. to why these things are the way, but it's uh-huh. your fault. It comes down yeah. to that. And I got to tell people, it's just got to be real careful because it can almost come off as a racist undertone when mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know, it's because you're responsible. And you're the, like, we have more sex than everybody else. <laughs> like, well, we're having more babies than everybody else. I think one way to think of it, too, that I try to think of it this way is like, okay, if it is a problem, like it's a problem in the black community, it's a problem in the white community. As a Christian, it is my job to help the fatherless. Yes. Like, and to love those without fathers. Yes. And to treat and to teach those who do not have fathers that they need to be good yes. fathers. So I think from, again, like, from cultural issues, right, as we divide on these cultural issues, I think one of the problems sometimes that we see culturally, because we often get in these silos of information that we're getting, right, where let's just say, like, maybe fatherlessness isn't the the biggest issue, but it's a big issue. Mm -hmm. And so what we hear or what people hear is, well, the biggest issue is fatherlessness. And what I'm hearing you say is that may be very well the case, but unfortunately, because we're in these information silos, like we don't, people don't see uh, a lot of times uh, black leaders beyond conservative, you know, black leaders or, or talking heads mm-hmm. saying that's the biggest cause mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and this needs to be fixed. And said, it's, it's always, not always, but it's primarily given to these economic disparities mm-hmm. that have historically been there and certainly are like obviously you're telling your church like you need to be a good dad right mm-hmm. okay. you need to father your chi- your children like mm-hmm. you need to be a father mm-hmm. to your children in the same way that i'm doing it to my church but we're not like people don't see that yeah like the media narrative if you're on the more liberal side is like fatherlessness isn't a problem it's just that's a dog whistle 
yeah. for racism. And then on the conservative side, like that's all that's there. That's yeah. the only problem that's there. So you, 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 you yeah, understand I, what I'm trying I, I to hear say? What you're saying. Like, I mean, and, and, and uh-huh. so the reality is, I read this uh, statistic on it. Is there's a difference between fatherless home and absentee fathers, mm-hmm. and that's where it's. That's why I say it's a problem that's political, because there are not as many statistically there are not as many absentee fathers in the black community as the media portrays that numbers mm-hmm. are actually african-americans that are involved in their children's lives paying child support supporting them all mm-hmm. this other stuff is actually as high if not higher than other minority groups and yeah. very it's not as low as people that's interesting make it out to be so there's a difference between fatherless homes and absentee fathers People aren't talking about that because that takes the talking point away. Mm-hmm. So what we do have, you know, is that there there is this absentee father opportunity that the church could seize upon. And I'm not saying opportunity like in a way that's, you know, self-serving, but there's a need out there, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, in the black community. You know, there are absentee fathers there in white community, absentee fathers. And that's the area of opportunity for the church. Um, if we had that type of mindset, you know, early church, that's all they thought about. Well, not all they thought about, but, you know, they were intentional. All right. We got orphans out here. Let's go take care of them. All right. We got yeah. widows out here. Let's go take care of them like that. The church, like you said, wanted to stand in those gaps. Um, but, yeah, I, I believe, unfortunately, that's another one of those things that unfortunately has gotten politicized. And because of that, people have, it creates so many secondary emotions and feelings. And, you know, we just need to step back, you know, especially as a church. We just really need to step back and say, okay, where, what is our place in this? Yeah, what can I, what can I do to help? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, okay, yes, this is a problem, mm-hmm. but how can I be a part of the solution? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Like, yeah. Um, and that's what kind of sometimes frustrates me about that whole conversation is, and in general, on on my side of the conversation, a lot of times people say, well, it's this issue or that issue. Right. Like, okay, I get it. <laughs> like, there's a problem, right? Yeah. These kids need dads. Yeah. So what are you doing? Right. You know, uh, to help. Right. Uh, and uh, so, yeah. And it's really easy to point out problems. I think that's actually re- – it's really hard to do something about them or to figure yeah. out solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pointing out problems makes us sound smart. Yeah. And intelligent. And, like, we are, are full of, of, of you know, we have a good handle on things. And everybody likes to deal with people who have a good handle on things right. and calling out the problems. But, unfortunately, um, there's often within our own selves prejudice in diagnosing problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm saying like if I'm a person where I, uh, you know, if I'm a if I'm a naturalist type individual uh-huh. and somebody comes in with a bellyache, mm-hmm. that's all them fast foods you eat, you know, because that's just I'm already set to yeah. believe that the cause of all problems is this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the cause yeah. of all problems is this processed food. And every time uh, dang, maybe it's possible that I have some bad lettuce, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, you're right, man. And I think what needs to happen is, you know, within the church, I'm particular, we got to understand, look, there have always been problems. There always will be problems. Where is God calling us yeah. 
to be in the yeah. midst of the problems. Yeah. Where does he want us to be? What does he want us to do in terms of all of the racial disparities and race relation issues in our country? Where does God want us to be in the economic stuff? Where is he want to But, you know, we are we are right now the Christian church and you know, I don't I don't talk negative as about the Christian church um proudly. Mm-hmm. Um but we're asleep. Yeah. We are asleep. Yeah. And if we think about it in context of the church and if we really believe like race is not something that should divide us or even define us, right? If the black community or the black church or white church, whatever, right, if we want to even do that, like your problems are actually my problems. Yes. You know, um, if you want to get rid of the church and just say, like, okay, we're Americans. Okay, so your problems are yes. still my problems. And we do need to have conversations and figure out how to fix them uh, and how to work together. Now, this conversation that we've had, uh, I think, three times now, we're almost two hours into this one, so we're going to wind this down. Oh, wow. It's helpful or easier in the sense that we basically we have the same, same worldview. Mm-hmm. Like here, I, we we believe that that Jesus is the Christ, that mm-hmm, He is mm-hmm. Lord. We want to be people who come under biblical authority and try to try to understand our experiences through the Scriptures. Um, we believe that uh, we will be uh, uh, in heaven together, every tribe, tongue, mm-hmm, and nation mm-hmm. worshiping yeah. Christ together. Like that's kind of our that's our that's our goal, right? That's that's the big story yeah. that we're able to kind of bring all this together in. And even in areas where we may disagree, we agree on that. Uh, so we're able to have this conversation. I think where this conversation gets much more difficult is people who don't agree right. on that narrative. Yeah. Um, and so we're two hours into this. If people stuck around <laughs> to listen to this, God bless you. Um, but I do think our country uh, has difficult is going to have difficult sailing forward because I don't think we have – we don't share the same narrative anymore. Mm. Um, like we really don't value the same things, yeah. uh, which makes conversations very difficult. Like I'm not sure what our shared culture is sometimes as a country anymore. Right. Like, which scares me. Uh, it's, it's, that's not a very hopeful position to be in, but I am hopeful for the church. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think we can reestablish some values and, and stuff in our country. Um, by being the church, uh, and that we can be salt and light, um, and right, like I hope we're not in the cusp of civil war or anything. But, but uh, you know, I'm definitely in prayer over this next presidential election, kind of what just how it just plays out, and all of those sorts of things, and how people react in and outside of the church. And yeah. I appreciate your time with me. Oh, man. this is fun. We I talked about it. a lot today, so I don't <laughs> we know did. if we'll. We'll get together and talk again. Maybe if people say, hey, Josh, will you talk about this issue or that issue a little more? One of the things I'm thinking about, like I didn't get a chance to kind of talk about why I think people voted for President Trump. Mm. Um, and this is not coming from somebody who is a big cheerleader for President Trump at all. Um, I'm not a, a, a fan, really, of the current direction of the Democratic Party either or of the Democratic Party in general. Right. Um, so I'm not saying that to to endorse Biden. That's yeah. not what I'm doing. <laughs> But uh, if you're interested, maybe we can have a conversation about that at some point in time. Just give me a call. Um, if me people know. want to. But 
Man, I appreciate you. Love you. And so glad we're able to have this conversation. Yeah, these are good. I know some people are listening to it. Not a ton. I'm definitely not Joe Rogan. Um, but uh, <laughs> I have had some friends and, and people part of our church check this out awesome. outside of the church. So Awesome. Good. Well, good. well, yeah, I've been sharing it. And, uh, yeah, people are people are tuning in. So, hey, good. people want to hear what we got to say, huh? Good. Awesome, man. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you.